Bibles this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Um, starting into Ecclesiastes uh, before uh, COVID even hit, just working through it together on Sunday evenings, it feels like an eternity ago now, uh, really was an offshoot or an outworking of having gone through Proverbs together and just starting to think about wisdom books, wisdom literature in general. And so then uh, finishing 1 Corinthians uh, and working through it, praying through it, and, and actually a number of you folks came and said, you know, could you go back to Ecclesiastes? And at the time, I really had no intention to um, preach through the book as extensively as we have. Uh, but just the more I got into it, uh, the more time I spent with it, Ecclesiastes became less and less of a puzzle and more of a trusted friend uh, over that time period. I taught through Ecclesiastes before in Sunday school a number of years ago, uh, but certainly not to the depth of study and time spent in the book. And so, as is common then, getting to the end of Ecclesiastes, getting to the end of a book of the Bible, uh, it's hard to let it go uh, because I've just seen so much truth resonating uh, for our lives and for our times. And so, uh, this is the last, and, and in many ways, as I said a few moments ago, it does seem fitting to have the last sermon in Ecclesiastes be the last sermon of 2020, uh, in a book that's all about hevel, all about vanity of vanities, and seems like a waste, uh, a year that has been very, very difficult for a number of reasons, and in some ways uh, can even feel like a waste. Certainly, this seems like the year of Ecclesiastes. And so, the book then, just to remind you, all about the concept of living in this broken and confusing world. Uh, a place where uh, it seems like our heart yearns for a set of truths and objective truth and our heart longs to see things as the Bible describes them in the book of Proverbs. If you do A plus B, it will equal C and one plus one equals two. And understanding that we want to live wisely in this world. But then Ecclesiastes comes along and it speaks into what our real existence is like. Uh, that one plus one doesn't seem to always equal two, and A plus B doesn't equal C. And in fact, we live in a confusing world that we want justice, but we see injustice. We want healing, but we see brokenness. We want life, but we see death. We want our work to matter, but then we're going to die, and we're going to pass away, and it's all going to be gone. And so then we want wisdom to matter, right? So that if we knew more, then we could control more. And then that doesn't work either, and we're kind of left with this head-shaking moment. And into that world, Ecclesiastes speaks. It speaks into the midst of all the confusion of our lives. It's one of the things I'm profoundly thankful for from the Bible, that it doesn't shy away from the difficult things of our lives. It doesn't shy away from the dark truths. And so when we come to the end, uh, it really is a hope-giving moment. Uh, and, I, and I really believe that more than any other part of Ecclesiastes, it points us to our true hope in Jesus Christ. And so Ecclesiastes 12, I want to read verses 9 through 14, the very last section. I will say, headed into it, there's some argument, there's some debate. Did Solomon write this portion, or was it another editor who put it together and comments on it? Um, I, I personally believe it was Solomon continued to write through, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time debating that or arguing that out this morning, teasing that out. Regardless, what we do have here is kind of a commentary on the whole book at this point, what it all points to. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I just, it, it's important that what he's commenting on is this broken world that we live in. And really all of Ecclesiastes has shown that to us. Uh, if you think back in the first early chapters, he kind of begins to give you a prelude to the whole book and the things he's going to be covering. What's he going to be talking about? And, and so chapters one and two, he's searching for meaning. He wants his life to matter. Just like each and every one of us this, in this room, we want our lives to count for something. And so all of Ecclesiastes is this long, meandering, wandering search for a life that will matter. What is it that I can do in my life or add to my life that will make it ultimately count for something? Because I live in this terrible world, and, and the quest for meaning is attached to living in this twisted Eden, this brokenness. And so if I work, eventually it winds down. If I change a light bulb, eventually it burns out again. If, if I clean up this car, eventually it's going to rust again. If I make this meal, it will spoil eventually or will be eaten. Well, if I live my whole life, even in a great way, I will die, and who's going to even remember me, and what will I leave my things to anyway? If I pursue pleasure, and I chase after that for meaning, so then that's what life is about. Do all you can, suck the marrow from the bones, have as much fun as you can, and then he found that to be empty as well. So chapters 1 through 2 were all about setting the stage for wanting meaning in life. Chapter 3, with the wonderful poem there of time, and there's everything, a season, and so that tells us that time is going by rapidly the older we get the more the faster it seems like time goes and it's just slipping by us so very quickly and so how do we make life count when time is going by so quick we live in this unjust world how do I make my life count when I'm surrounded by such injustice there are so many things I cannot control I don't think injustice would bother us as much as it does if we could do something about it and so it feels like we, we see criminals who are not punished and we see terrible acts and a bombing in Nashville this weekend and, and we want to do something, we want to change something. We think of child slavery around the world and kidnappings and, and selling people like they're, like they're cattle. We, we think of Muslim extremists in Africa going in and stealing away 300 little girls to make them their wives for their jihad. And we want justice, but part of the striving in our hearts is we want justice and we have this longing, the image of God, the imago Dei pressed upon us that craves justice and yet we seem to have no power. How does my life matter if I'm doing things that make me happy, but I know all these other things going on in the world? Church and wisdom can't fix it. Ultimately realizing my work won't fix it. The things I do can't fix it. Coming to church can't fix it, and while it's a joy to go into church and into corporate worship, you go out and the world remains the same way. You can be wise and you can't change it. Death is coming. <laughs> it's coming for all of us. We saw that even specifically last week at the first part of chapter 12 of what it feels like as death is coming and the physical things that everyone in this room will eventually suffer, and maybe you already are, and even leaders fail. If we think the answer is get the right leader in, that is the person who'd have the power, the influence, then we'd be able to change things. And we realize that none of these things are fixing this broken 
world, it is similar to Judges in that sense. You get through the book of Judges, and, and Judges would be profoundly difficult to ever preach in a Sunday morning series because it's so dark, it's so difficult. But all of Judges drives and drives and drives you to the point to say one thing, we need a king. And obviously Israel thinks they need a king, the king they choose is the worst king. It's to drive our hearts to realize we need King Jesus. Ecclesiastes is written to drive us to the point to say something has to change in my life to have meaning. Now, I don't know which of those may have resonated with you this morning or as we've worked our way through Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you found yourself, uh, chapters 1 through 6, on the end of work and pleasure. That's where you try to find meaning in life. Work hard, play hard, that makes life better. Or if you landed on the other end, wisdom, knowing more, understanding more, comprehending more, because then I can control more. I don't know if that's where it resonated with you to realize that all of this at the end of the day is futility. None of it fixes life. And so how do we do this broken world? Well, this whole world around us is craving and trying to find answers. Viktor Frankl was a famed Jewish psychologist. He lived through Auschwitz. His wife died in Auschwitz. And while he was there, he would try everything to get through the suffering, the intense sorrows that he was experiencing. And so as he would work, and he would work very, very hard, as he would work, he would imagine having conversations with his wife the whole time. And as he would have conversations with wife and talking uh, to his dear wife, who was not even there, and look what we're doing, and look at the hard work I'm doing, and he was constantly trying to find meaning in one of three ways. Through relational connection, as he imagined his wife and his friends around him, through work that he was doing, that it was hopefully profitable, and thirdly, through overcoming sorrow. And Viktor Frankl came out of World War II and founded what was a school of psychiatry known as logotherapy. It's based off of the Greek word logos, uh, which would mean word or really meaning. His whole theoretical concept was that you can find meaning in life through either work, relationships, or overcoming sorrows. It's almost like he was trying to find the secular answer. For Ecclesiastes. Jimmy Fallon, a number of years ago, actually revived interest in his book. Jimmy, um, he, the, the host of The Late Show, he cut his finger and did all this damage, ended up in hospital and was hospital bound for a week or two. And, and uh, as is common in our world, here he's in the hospital over having a finger repaired and he's struggling and depressed and trying to find the meaning of life. And so he got tired of watching TV, so he started reading books, and he read this guy's book. And so now Jimmy says this, the meaning in my life is to make people laugh and to make people happy. That's where I find meaning. He finds it in work and in overcoming sorrow. And so many, many people have turned to answers like Viktor Frankl's. And they look to people like him as a hero. If he got through Auschwitz, then maybe that's where the answer is. Maybe that's how I can have meaning in my life. And I hope that as we've come to the end of Ecclesiastes, you would realize that work and wisdom, neither of them work. And ultimately, neither do secular answers like relationships or working very hard or overcoming sorrows. Those don't bring meaning to our lives either. They are pale shadows of the truth. The fact of the matter is Ecclesiastes is honest about the truth that we live houses on shifting sand. And you can work as hard as you want and lose it all overnight. You can have as much wisdom as you want 
and lose it all overnight because of some crazy person or health condition. You can seem to overcome one sorrow only to be drowned by another sorrow. We are living in sky rises that are a lot more like Jenga towers, trying to find stability in our lives that we just can't. And so what is the point? The New Testament owns this reality as well in Romans. In Romans 8, 20 through 22, it describes the whole world around us quaking under the pressure of being broken. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What you need, what I need, are truths that would set us free. We need the kind of truth that pushes away the darkness and brings light. We need the kind of truth that restores. We need the kind of truth that stabilizes. And that's exactly the kind of truth that the teacher, the preacher, Kohelet, Solomon, comes to at the end of his book. And ultimately, the truth is this, that meaning in this twisted Eden is found in the truth of the Good Shepherd. How can you and I find meaning in this house on shifting sand? How can you and I survive in a Jenga tower sky rise? It feels like what's the point of even decorating? The smallest tremor will topple everything over. And so he wants us to know that there are answers. And the answers are not found in all the things that Solomon quested after and all the things that you and I are prone to. And so what we need is truth, and we're really going to look at two categories of truths that he gives us this morning. He's going to give us restoring truths, and then he's going to give us shepherding truths. And there's two different sections there that we'll see. And the first one, the restoring truths are found there in verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. It is funny, it's ironic, commentators fight a lot about these verses. Did Solomon write it? Did another editor write it? And it really boils down to the fact that he's in the third person. And, and so it, it's unusual. We've, we've all probably run across people or seen TV shows or movies where people talk about themselves in the third person. Uh, well, how was your Christmas? Well, Steve had a great Christmas. And, and, and Steve, uh, we, had, we had my mom's sage sausage stuffing and uh, kids open presents. And we got to, Steve played games with his family. And it's just weird for someone to reference themselves in the third person. And so a lot of commentators say, well, then this can't be Solomon. The only problem with that is throughout the book, about four different times, the author clearly is talking about himself in the third person. And why would he do that? I, I think it actually gives us a little bit of an effect going on here. It's almost like he's saying, look at how I've lived my life, and I'm now examining how I've lived my life. Now, based on your personality type or your personal bents or your spiritual gifts or whatever, some of us are more prone to introspection than others. And that can be a very healthy thing and, and also it can be a very unhealthy thing. Uh, introspection is unhealthy when you just live in your own head and you can't get past who you are and uh, you always feel like an outcast or you always feel different or you always feel like a failure and all you, you replay conversations over and over and over and over in your mind. And so introspection can be unhealthy. But introspection can also be very, very healthy. Uh, one of the greatest things you can do to damage relationships is to have a lack of self-awareness. 
to not realize who you are and how you talk and uh, how you operate and how you function with others. Uh, the reality is a community of the gospel can help you realize who you really are. It's part of the intent of a local church in Hebrews 3 that we are to uh, confront one another. In Hebrews 10, we're to edify one another and encourage one another. In, Ecclesiastes, in Ephesians 4, we're to speak truth and love to one another. We all need to consider who we are, and it seems like that's what Solomon's doing. It seems like he's saying this toward the end of his life. He's already written the book of Proverbs. He's written many other sayings, many other books, poems. And now he's stepping back and he's looking at all of it. And he is telling us, stop chasing what I chased. He's considering the fact that, that there's really some things that need to be done. And so the first thing he tries to do is he tries to restore Ecclesiastes. Now, I love restoration projects. If I was ever going to have a hobby, if, if the day ever comes when, when God has me, and I'm sure it will come, I don't preach anymore, uh, phone doesn't ring, nobody wants counsel, nobody wants discipleship, uh, I, I can't be trusted what I'm going to say, I've, I've, I've gone over to the point where that needs to be where I invest my time. If there's a hobby I would love to do, it's restoring things. I think it's so cool, whether it's tools or cars or, or old woodwork, it doesn't really matter to me. Toys, old toys, a number of years ago we were at my parents' house and Bowling Green, Kentucky, we found my old 8-bit Nintendo system. I, I think I got it when I was either 13 or 14. And so we brought it home, and I cleaned it all up and used some alcohol and some water and some mild soap, ordered one part, fired it up, and promptly schooled all my children in Super Mario Brothers because I am the man when it comes to Super Mario Brothers. All those hours of investment, it was shocking how quick the muscle memory came back. Let's just say that. But it was fun, and, and it sits in our TV cabinet to this day, and there's days my children will actually play my old video games. I just think it's fun to restore things. I think it's so cool. And so the first thing the teacher wants to do is restore Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes can feel like a waste to us. It can feel like, what did it really accomplish? And so he wants to tell us there is a value to all the hard things that he's covered, He's brought all the ugliness of your life and my life to the forefront of our minds. And he says something fascinating. He says it's beautiful. He sought to find words of delight. He arranged them with great care, uprightly. These are all uh, descriptors of something that's beautiful and good. But Ecclesiastes doesn't feel beautiful and good to us. It feels ugly and empty. It feels like, how can it be good to just put it all out there? Isn't it better if you go to a family meal that you just dodge every controversial subject so everybody walks away? Isn't it better to have shallow friendships rather than the risk of deep friendships that may, you may lose by speaking truth? Isn't it better to pretend? Isn't fantasy better than reality? He says, no. He says, actually, it's a beautiful reality that he speaks truth. The reality is he's saying, is, as one person said, truth is rare and real, and so it's beautiful. You know, false teachers lie to you. They tell you peace, peace, when there is no peace. The shepherds of Israel said we're under no threat when the enemy was about to come in and overwhelm and destroy them. Satan lies to Eve about the reality of this world and deceives her that she can remake it in a way that would make her ultimately happy. Their beauty, one of the beauties to Ecclesiastes is it's honest about life. And the honesty here makes you and I come to grips with that reality. It doesn't give us the fantasy. It isn't fake news. It isn't written in a way just to inflame. 
It isn't written in a way just to deceive us. Satan lies to Eve and he says, this Eden that you're living in, Eve, is twisted because it's ruled by this despot who's afraid of you and who wants to control you and you can actually be like him. He tells her that good is evil and evil can become good. Instead, when she buys into his lies and into the deception, she finds herself screaming in agonizing pain, bringing babies into the world. She sits weeping in a field, cradling the broken dead body of her son because her oldest son murdered her, his brother. She spends years, decades, centuries. She lived eight, nine hundred years, surrounded by death and destruction, stealing and lying. She was told that the perfect Eden was the problem and actually it was the solution. I'm making the claim here this morning that honesty is innately beautiful. I'm making that claim because God is truth. And so that which comes from God has an innate beauty to it. I'm making that claim this morning because when God is honest about the condition of of humanity. When God is honest and tells us that we are all sinners, he does that not to destroy us, but to rescue us. When he looks at the woman at the well and he says, go get your husband, and she says, I don't have one, and Jesus says, I know. It's because you've been married multiple times and now you're living with a guy. He doesn't do that to humiliate her. He does that to set her free. Ecclesiastes is beautiful because it speaks truth, and truth is beautiful because it points us to hope. In times of trouble, in seasons of distress, in our Jenga towers of existence, in our houses on shifting sand where it feels like the the closest floodwaters will ruin everything. When all that we have to comprehend is the, the cruel tremors that we feel, where every shake of our soil makes us question relationships and safety. I want you to know the ugliest, the cruelest, the meanest thing you can do to someone in that spot is lie to them and claim that they're safe. Ecclesiastes is beautiful because it deals in reality. And so what he's doing with his truth here at the end is he's restoring Ecclesiastes and the beauty of it, the, the beauty of this wandering search. But then he also is on the, on the process of restoring Eden to us. We do live in this twisted world. And so these truths are going to point us, the truths he's going to give us are going to point us to how this twisted Eden will one day become the true Eden. There is a path to have meaning in life. Your life doesn't have to count for nothing. You can actually have meaning, whether it's in the sorrow or in the brokenness and the shifting sand and the difficulties and the trials of life. Your life can have meaning. Your life can have meaning even born out of the midst of your sinfulness. Your life can matter. It can count. And so he wants us to know that while we are in this twisted, warped world and while we're surrounded by all this wickedness and unkindness and ungodliness, God is still alive and he is still on mission for his glory. While there are thorns and thistles and blood and sorrow and pain and death, there are also flowers and a future harvest and births and romance, good food, fun times with friends, and more importantly, there's a path that goes to life beyond this under-the-sun existence. Ecclesiastes is beautiful because it points us to a future hope. It points us to something beyond our troubles. It points us to something beyond corona and COVID and political nonsense and domestic terrorism and foreign terrorism and wickedness that we're surrounded with. It points us to something beyond our health and financial problems. 
And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to us. And so he tells us that these are restoring truths, but then he tells us they're shepherding truths. Verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. There's two big ideas that have come through Ecclesiastes for us. First, that it's ugly, and it needs restoration. Uh, My dad, when I was a kid, he taught me, if you buy tools, buy good tools. And so when I was a kid growing up, the best, some of the best tools were craftsmen, and they have these lifetime warranty. And I'll never forget one time a friend found a, an old three-quarter-inch craftsman socket uh, in a field, a ratchet in a field. And this thing was rusted and corroded and nasty. And he took it to Sears, and he handed it to him, and they handed him a brand-new one. Because that's, that's what you do. You know, craftsman tools, lifetime warranty. And so almost all of my tools, mechanics tools, are craftsman tools. Uh, Even since I was a kid, that's what I would buy is craftsman tools. And so it's one thing when somebody takes something that's old and they just replace it. But it's another kindness when someone takes something broken and they fix it. And he's telling us this twisted Eden is somehow going to be fixed and the first place we're going to see that fixing is in your life and in mine long before god will speak everything right in this world he will begin that process in the hearts of sinful people and he will take these people that are full of their sin and are completely corrupt, right? And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God and the, none of us seek after God, none of us are good, and yet Christ comes to rescue us and to transform us. And he tells us very plainly, if you would repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. As Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he begins this restoration process. And once it's, it's completed, your salvation has It's an ongoing process of sanding us and buffing us and oiling us and fixing us through sanctification until we ultimately get to glory. And so what Solomon is hinting at, what Kohelet, the teacher, is hinting at, is that work in your life, in my life. They are shepherding truths. And so, first of all, he calls them goads, right? And you really have guiding truth and you have grounding truth. You use a goad to guide an animal. It's a sharp pointed stick. Uh, And so you might think of the shepherd's crook and that comes close to it, but not quite. And the shepherd's crook you use to keep those sheep on the path. Sheep are innately stupid animals, right? Uh, And just to remind you, I live in this awareness, I'm a sheep shepherd, right? He's a a sheep under shepherd. So it's like player manager. So I got everything I say about sheep this morning. It's I'm not thinking clergy laity. I'm thinking believer, okay? Just I'm with you. So we, we, right, we are innately dumb creatures. How do we know that? We, we tend to wander off path. You wander? Me too, right? I think I've seen you by the edge of the cliff with me, right? We eat the wrong things, right, you know, physically and spiritually. You know, we consume what we ought not. Uh, we, we are afflicted by, by, by foreign agents, uh, bugs and gnats that distract us. You ever get distracted by this world? You ever get to the point that you're like, man, is there some rules that I can use to govern my smartphone? 
Here's a basket. Everybody put it, put it in there. Turn off the news. Turn off this. I don't want to do this anymore. A few months ago, when we were talking about leaders, I said one of the godliest things you might be able to do here in this season is turn off the news and open your Bible. Right? That's as much for my heart. We need our heads anointed with oil. We need our wounds bound up. We need to be protected from the evil one. We need to be kept on the path. Goads keep you on the path. They are a sharp pointed stick that jabs you. Some of Ecclesiastes is sharp and pointed, isn't it? You want to find meaning through work? It's a foolish endeavor. You want to find meaning in pleasure? You think, you think life is all about work super hard so you can have as much fun as you want? Get all the stuff you want? Do all the things you want? Check off all your bucket list? You're going to end up at the end of life and feel absolutely shallow and empty. That's a pointed stick. You think accumulating wealth to pass it on an inheritance is meaning in life? You're going to feel, here's a pointed stick. You have no control over it, and it could be wasted and consumed, right? Actually, most people born with a silver spoon in their mouth don't do too well. But that's your temptation because you love your kids, right? It's a pointed stick. Your work, you've put effort in, or academia, right? Um, I'm in the middle of classes right now, and so I'm just reading tons and writing tons, and there's a part of me I want it to be profitable, and Ecclesiastes is a bit of a pointed stick. Because it's like, I could do lots of this, but if I think that that's going to make my life meaningful, I'm a fool. And so part of this is intended to guide us. He says it's a good shepherd who goads us. Suddenly, the temptation to believe that a relationship will make me happy, more money would satisfy, achievements will last, that we can find meaning beyond God. The real temptation is that God is not enough, and we need something or someone more than God. In other words, our temptation is the same as Eve in the garden. God is keeping from you that which would make you happy. Psalm 119, verse 10 The psalmist writes this, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That's an interesting prayer because we are tempted to get off course. We need the sharp pointings of a good shepherd to keep us on the narrow road. We need truth that is beautiful, truth that moves us on the right path because our natural bent will be to stray. We don't know if David wrote Psalm 119 or not. We know that Israel is filled with shepherds. So if you pray Psalm 119, pray it like a shepherd. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. To pray to God, God don't let me wander, is to invite the sharp poking of his goading in your life. And it is what you need. It's painful. Hebrews 12 actually tells us very plainly that God disciplines his children. And he chastens all those whom he loves. If you know Jesus this morning, you will not go through this life without feeling the sharp discipline of God and the painful consequences for sinful behavior. Now, hear me right. If you're a believer, you are free from the eternal consequences of your sin. But even as you and I enter into eternity, we have to live in the reality. Some of the things we do will be burnt up as ash. And there are other things we will do here. We will suffer the consequences of our sin because Ecclesiastes has pointed us the reality, even you sow and you reap. And Galatians tells us you reap what you sow. We need God's guiding hand in our life, but we also need grounding truth. 
This other phrase is a bit more confusing to know the exact reference, even though its meaning is clear. So let's read it again. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So there's a couple of options it could be. It could be uh, in some goads, they would actually put a nail in the end of the stick to make it even pokier. I don't know what other word it was, right? Like the, the point wasn't enough. You, you said this the same way I've said it before. Like some of you are with me right, on this one. <clears throat> Why is it I feel like I live my whole life and God has to use a two by four to get my attention, right? You with me? What we're saying is I'm stubborn like a mule and I need to get whacked really hard. And so one of the ways that some shepherds would do is they'd make their stick extra pointy by putting a nail into the of it to, end of it to really give us something. Some of us need, at different seasons, some sharper poking. It could be that. It could be that. It could also be when a shepherd would put together uh, a, a, a pen to hold in their animals. Now, when they were wandering and they were nomadic, they would gather up thorn bushes and kind of stick them all together, and the sheep wouldn't want to go through the thorn bushes. That was one method. But in a more permanent place, they would build a corral, just like what we're used to, and they would nail it together. Because sheep, we wander, and we don't just wander, we test barriers and boundaries all the time. And so God says, this far, no further. And we're like, really? Is that as far as I can go? Let me go a little further. And the constant pounding up against the standards of God seems to loosen the structure for us. That's what we want to happen. But nails firmly fixed are going to keep that from happening. I was watching a video the other day of a honey badger. Honey badgers are astoundingly smart animals. And this guy was talking about having this honey badger and he's trying to keep the honey badger safe because honey badgers are really smart, but they're also, they have courage to the point of foolishness, right? Like, like they are vicious animals. They fight and kill snakes for fun. They're called honey badgers because they love to eat honey. And so they will go and they will attack a beehive and just suffer from Africanized bees, hundreds of stings to get the honey that they want. They're just stubborn animals. And this honey badger, he had it in a pen. He's trying to keep it safe because at one point it got out, got into the lion pen in kind of this little zoo. And it gets into a fight with the lion and it loses. Shocking. Honey badger's like this big. And so he's like, I've got to now protect the honey badger from itself. Everything he did, the honey badger found a way to get around. He put it in a pen so the honey badger found a way to climb trees that were near the side, get his full weight at the top so it'd bend over and he could get over the wall. So they cut all those trees down around the edges. The honey badger then gathered all these rocks, pushed all these rocks to the corner of the pen so it could climb up on the rocks to climb out. They're like, fine, we're taking all the rocks out. The honey badger, badger, I kid you not, made mud balls stacked mud balls on top of one another with its hind legs to climb up to get out. I'm like, the honey badger's a beast, man. Like, like it's one of those, I'm like, now that's a pet, right? right? Um, all my neighbors would hate me. Like, every cat and dog in the neighborhood would be gone from the honey badger. They're just mean, right? But, but it's constant effort to get out, and the guy's actually trying to keep it safe from its own harm. They got it a female honey badger. That'll distract the honey badger. No, sir. This just became his partner in crime. So they had a gate with, with double locks. The honey badger convinced his spouse to sit on the ground while he climbed on her back. He would undo one while she did, did the other. He had to undo them at the same time to push it open. He'd hold the gate open for her. He was a gentleman after all to let the honey badger. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is who we are. Because we'll come and we'll sit and we'll hear the word or we'll open our Bibles. Or we'll listen to somebody else's sermon. And we'll be convicted of our sin, and, and God will be goading us. And we'll just convince ourselves, yeah, but not me. 
Yeah, maybe Solomon didn't find meaning in pleasure, but I can. Maybe Solomon didn't find meaning in work, but I will. And what he's telling us is the collected sayings. What you and I need is not just sharp poking, but we need a literal avalanche of truth to fix these in our hearts. We need to be overwhelmed with the amount of collected truth. That the nailing together is what's going to keep our house together in the midst of the blowing hurricanes of this life. It's, when it, it's, when it keep, it's what's going to keep the boat together in the floods of sorrow of this life. We need grounding truth because our natural bent will be toward instability. It's really a James 1, 6 moment, right? Where he tells us that if you need wisdom to ask for it, but he tells us not to be dipsuke, double-minded. Because a double-minded man, one who's asking God for wisdom but still has his eye on the world, is double-minded and is unstable in all his or her ways. We cannot be trusted. We, we say, yes, I need the Bible, but I also need Viktor Frankl logotherapy to have meaning in life. I, I need the Bible and Jesus, but I also need this relationship. I need the Bible and Jesus, but I also need this job. I need Bible and Jesus, but I also need my health. And that's what will produce stability. And actually, that makes us shockingly unstable. And so we need guiding truth because we are prone to wander. We need grounding truth because we are prone to instability. If any apostle understood the temptation to be blown off course and become unstable, it was Peter. <clears throat> he denies Jesus at one point. He cuts off the servant's ear to prove his loyalty. He's terrified of being rejected, and he twists the gospel in Antioch. So he speaks out of a life that needs stability and he writes this toward the end of his own life in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Talking of God, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may have become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What's interesting there is that the language there, escaping corruption, could also be translated escaping the instability of a corrupt life. Peter understood that as he grew and changed, as he was guided by Christ and grounded in Christ, that's where stability would come from. And Solomon puts it in language that borrows from his own father. It's interesting here that he says at the end, they are from the shepherd. They are given by one shepherd. It's, it's almost comical to read liberal commentators try to make sense of the shepherd. Well, who is it? Is it Solomon? Well, it's this third editor and talking about it, so maybe it's somebody else and it's this person. And everybody else is like, um, Solomon know any shepherds? I don't know. Like, any prophecies regarding shepherds? seems fairly obvious. And so I find it fascinating that here at the end of Ecclesiastes in a book all about trying to find meaning in life, all about living in an unstable world, that his heart and mind goes back to his own father, David, the shepherd, who wrote what may be the, the most famous psalm of all. And so I, with, with thinking about Ecclesiastes, thinking about the instability of life, thinking about trying to find meaning, try, thinking about going off course and needing guidance and being unstable and needing grounding. Think of those truths when I read to you this. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When he says he will fear no evil. In your Jenga Tower Skyrise apartment. What delivers you and I from fears of the instability of the world like Ecclesiastes describes, which is to say your world and my world, what delivers us from the fears of that are his rod and his staff, literally his goad and his shepherd's crook. That which pokes you, that's what grounds you, that's what guides you and that which grounds you. Solomon understood he personally needed a shepherd in his life. The teacher knows what it's like to think that this isn't enough, though. He'd been raised at his father's knee. He'd been raised memorizing psalms. He'd been raised hearing his father sing. He'd been raised on the stories of his dad. There's no way if Steve John sits at the dinner table and tells my children stories of my childhood that David had not sat with Solomon and told him of defeating Goliath or of God's provision in the cave running from Saul. Or what it was like to shepherd and how shepherding was an image of what it was like to be a good king who cares for the sheep and would lay his life down for the sheep. And so he gives one more warning before he gives us our truth that will be intended to guide and to goad and to ground us. And the warning is in verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books, <clears throat> there is no end. And much study is the weariness of the flesh. He knows, as he's about to give us this truth, your heart and my heart will be like Eve's heart and we will be tempted to say, that's not enough. And so he gives one last little warning, one last jarring image. Stop looking for meaning beyond anything but this truth that I'm about to give you. And it's truths of a good shepherd. And he says it this way. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. <clears throat> it's a bit like trying to sort out a puzzle and figure out what it all means. And you get to the end and he says, here's the key that unlocks it. This is the answer to the puzzle box. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now the way he lays these out really flows faith, fear, obedience. And he lays it out in this structure. We reverentially fear God, that's what he says, verse 13, fear God, which results in loving obedience and keep his commandments. Why? Because we believe 
by faith that he is who he says he is. And so he's telling you, how do you live life? How do you think about life? You, you do it out of a fear of God, a worshipful approach to God. We understand that he's not talking about the terror, fear of the lost. He's not talking about the concept that, that not only does God say all of humanity is lost, but because of your lostness, right, you are condemned to an eternal hell, to die. And so Christ has come, he's been born of a virgin, we celebrated this just a few days ago with Christmas, and he lived a perfect life and he died a sinless death of his own choosing. No man took his life from him, but he laid it down to rescue us as a good shepherd would lay his life down for his sheep. And if you would turn from your sin, believe in him, you shall be saved. He says, once that happens, you are no longer terror feared of God. We, we think of it this way. God has taken off his robes of a judge or robes of an executioner toward you. And he's put on daddy robe or daddy cardigan. He, he, he's been transformed from the courtroom of justice, divine justice, to condemn you and I to eternal hell. And he's become a loving father who, yes, he disciplines and chastens his children, but not to destroy us. And so we fear him the way a child loves and cherishes their father. And our children are raised in homes, and if they have a good dad, and they're raised appropriately, you at least get a few years where dad is hero. That is but a pale shadowing image of what it's like with our Heavenly Father. And so you and I are living in orphanages, unwanted, unloved, cruel, inhumane little beasts. Put away in an orphanage because no one wants us, and we are murderers, every one of us. And then the man whose son we've murdered comes to the orphanage and chooses you. You're not bright-eyed. You're not a beautiful little baby. You are ugly and you are hideous and you are deformed and no one would want you, but the King of Heaven and the Father of all has chosen you. And he brings you in and he makes you his own. You tell me, would you not reverence that Father who has loved you so deeply? And has not made you his own. And he says, we then cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. Christmas morning, when your children are little, you stay up way later than you should Christmas Eve, wrapping presents, sticking them under a tree. And those beautiful little creatures awaken you. Ere the sun has even yet risen. A good parent doesn't say, go back to bed. <laughs> you rouse yourself, you pour a black cup of coffee, and through bleary eyes and bedhead, you rejoice with them. Who can interrupt the father in the middle of the night but his own dear child? And we can run now to this daddy. We reverence him. And so he says, because you reverentially fear God. It's this loving, devoted, respect, fear. I don't want to cross him, not because I'm terrified of him, but because I love him so deeply. And because of that, then I want to obey him. I want to do what he wants me to do. No one has loved me like this daddy. So when daddy says to do X, I want to do X. I want to show my love to daddy. And in fact, Jesus even tells us, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. You obey him 
because you love him. And then he says you do all of this because you believe he is who he says he is. Now that's the flow there. You could actually put it this way. Faith that God is who he says he is, which leads to reverential fear, which results in loving obedience. This is the progression logically with the way it happens. Solomon is telling us how to live. And so really the order doesn't ultimately matter. Theologically it matters because we have to understand the reality. You don't get to faith through obedience, right? You don't get saved because of what you do. You act out your salvation. In other words, I'm first saved and then I do right. You don't get cleaned up to take a bath, as we have often said. You're not saved by your works. Works and, and, and good works and good deeds and obedience comes out of a heart that's already been transformed. We believe he is who he says he is. Which leads to a reverential fear of him, which results in loving obedience. There came a time when God was finally going to destroy the original Eden. For over a thousand years, it had stood with angels guarding it to keep anyone from entering it. An unapproachable oasis in the middle of a now-twisted Eden. You know, I wonder if, if when my son was 10, he, I take my kids on a trip, special trip when they turn 10. And so my oldest, he wanted, to, he wanted to see history, loves history. So we went up to Baltimore, went up to D.C., hit a bunch of the Smithsonian's, uh, Fort McHenry, Naval Academy. Um, and we also went to where I grew up. I wanted to show them where I grew up. I wonder if Adam and Eve ever took their kids on a family vacation to sit on a mountaintop and look down over into the valley where Eden was at. That's where it once was. While they had to clear away some thorn bushes to have a place to sit, they told them stories of a place where there were no thorns and thistles. While they, while they bandaged up kids' scraped knees, they told them of a place where there wasn't death and destruction. While they dug dirt out from their nails from having to work in the dirt that resisted their efforts. They told them of a place where you could just walk in and pluck the fruit off the trees. I wonder if it wasn't a spot to go and just look at, knowing you can't get too close because there's angels there that'll kill you if you try to enter it. And for a thousand years or more, it was there. A place where justice was a distant memory. Pleasure and personal desire had become the rule of the day. And into this moment, God brings judgment. Into the twisted Eden, God brings destruction. A worldwide flood that's going to kill everyone except eight souls and every creature except for a select few. Just enough for a new beginning. The world would be returned to what it was like on the second day of creation, where water alone covered the earth. Of course, we know, though, there was Noah. And I want you to see how Hebrews describes Noah when God finally destroys the original Eden, and all we have now is the twisted Eden. He says it this way, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith he believes faith he fears and so he obeys faith is simply a confidence that god is exactly who he says he is and he will do exactly what he says he'll do it is a trust-based reliance on god and so when god says you're a sinner 
You're condemned. You'll stand before me. If you have not repented and put your faith in Christ, you have not followed him, then I will condemn you to hell. You believe that. It results in a reverential fear of God. You, you confess your sins, you turn from your sins, you put your trust in him, you begin on a journey of now loving obedience. Just like what Noah does. By faith, which results in fear, which results in obedience. You see what he does. The meaning of Noah's life becomes bound up in the work that God has called him to do. Bound up in the relationship God has called him to have. And it was in overcoming, by faith, the trials that God brought into his life. And it's interesting, because what drives Noah is the beautiful, guiding, and grounding truth that in the midst of a very broken world, a very twisted Eden, that what really mattered was confidence in the person and promises of God. I want us to understand as we come to the close of Ecclesiastes that the New Testament calls Noah a herald of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. But this is a confusing thing. Because you may have heard, and I'm curious, you rarely get to raise your hand in our church in response to a pastor, so I'm curious. How many of you have heard that Noah preached and then he was mocked openly for preaching? Do you know the source of that? Do you, are you prone to believe what the Quran says? Because that's the only source of that. It's not found in Jewish literature. Certainly not found in the Bible. In fact, what's interesting is Peter calls him a herald of righteousness, but listen to how he's described in Matthew by Jesus. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came. Now let me ask you, if Noah had been preaching for a hundred years, how on earth were they unaware? And yet what Hebrews says is he preached by the building of the ark. And Peter says, this is a herald of righteousness. So what does Peter mean did, did Noah preach? Did he preach at all? The Quran and Islam is what people point to saying that he did. I'll be honest with you, I am not. I refuse to use the Quran as a source of authority. It isn't Jewish tradition I'm going to turn to. I'm going to trust the Bible. What the Bible says preached was building the ark. In other words, the stunning faith the astounding fear and the obedience of his life in an uncertain world is what was considered to be a powerful sermon. Now, when you and I get to the end of Ecclesiastes and we agree with Kohelet, the teacher, Solomon, to say, this is the end of the matter. One of the things he's telling us then is for your life and my life to count is to be heralds of righteousness by living a life set on someone very, very different than the rest of this world. He is saying, let your life preach through your faith and your fear and your obedience. Now hear me right, I am not saying do not proclaim the gospel. I am telling you this, 
You can proclaim the gospel all day, but if you don't live a life that's marked by faith, fear, and obedience, your words and my words are trite and empty. What I am telling you is that in this twisted Eden, your life can have meaning, but it must come first and foremost through belief in Christ alone. Your life can have meaning, but it must come secondarily through a reverential fear of who God is. And your life can have meaning, but it must be one whose faith and whose fear results in loving obedience. And when we think that way, Eden is found in the truths of the good shepherd. The truth, believe him, fear him, and obey him. And one day, this twisted Eden will be restored. He begins that process in the hearts and souls of people today. And so we should go from Ecclesiastes with a renewed hope that Christ is on rescue mission. And with a renewed zeal to proclaim that rescue mission to all the lost around us, that their lives too can have meaning, and not from another degree, or a better job, or more money in the bank accounts, but through belief in the one who has come this Christmas to save us all from our sins.